Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners on the West Coast rejoice because just last week, the exhibition Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, opened at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco. And if you missed this exhibition like I did, the very first time it was presented all the way back in 2014 at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, well, now you have a chance to see it. The show encompasses 79 fully accessorized ensembles created by one of our favorite Americans in Paris. So what do you say, Cass? Are you up for a trip to San Fran? Oh, yes. And to celebrate, (laughs) we are re-airing our 2019 episode with Dr. Eric Darnell Pritchard, who joined us to discuss African-American designer Patrick Kelly. Kelly took the international fashion community by storm in the 1980s with his fun, playful designs that brought pure joy to the runway. Quote, I want my clothes to make you smile, Patrick once said. And the joy of his clothes were and continue to be to this very day infectious. Essence Magazine said of Kelly in the 1980s, quote, he is a breath of fresh air in a business that often takes itself too seriously. And Kelly has been the subject of two retrospective exhibitions in the past, one at the Brooklyn Museum of Art in 2014, and of course, the aforementioned exhibition in 2014 in Philadelphia. But Cass, I remember that when you started researching this episode way back in 2019, aside from these two museum exhibitions, you were surprised to find that there has been very little written about Patrick Kelly. You know, and he was this beloved designer who was as known for his kindness as he was his, quote, unbeatable Southern hospitality. And also his very fun and whimsical approach to fashion. And this is where Dr. Eric Darnell Pritchard enters the scene. Yes, Dr. Pritchard is the Brown Chair in English Literacy and Associate Professor of English at the University of Arkansas, where they write and teach about literacy and rhetoric and their intersections with fashion, beauty, popular culture, identity, and power. Their writings on fashion, beauty, and Black queer life and culture have been widely published in multiple venues, including their 2016 book, Fashioning Lives, Black Queers, and the Politics of Literacy. Dr. Pritchard is currently completing their biography of Patrick's life, Nothing is Impossible, The Life and Work of Patrick Kelly. And honestly, their love and passion for fashion history and Patrick's work is quite frankly infectious. And we know you will enjoy this episode as much as we did. Yes. And we are so thrilled to revisit this conversation. Welcome, Dr. Pritchard. Eric, welcome to the show today. It is such a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, You know, I should say I love podcasts in general, and I love fashion podcasts especially. (laughs) Uh, And Dressed is one of my favorites, so this is absolutely a dream come true. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) We are very excited to have you here today. You are currently in the process of researching and writing a book about Patrick Kelly's life. So I'm really curious how you came to your subject. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, I always tell people that Patrick Kelly is the book that I've been writing since I was eight years old. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I first learned about Patrick Kelly in the late 80s, seeing him on television. I remember especially him being on style with Elsa Clinch. And I, you know, grew up in Queens and, you know, I always knew Black people who were stylish and fashionable, but I'd never known Black people who were in the fashion industry, at least as I had understood it, you know, in my kind of like, you know, childlike mind. And so, you know, seeing this person on television, you know, within the context of like, you know, fashion as industry, you know, it was clear that he was the boss, that people were there for him, um, that these were his designs. It was just, you know, remarkable, you know, for me. I became really curious about who this person was just off of that. And then throw in, you know, the Southern accent, the overalls, (laughs) the biker's cap. He was funny. He was witty. And, you know, I was just completely uh, enamored and wanting to learn more. So, you know, that's how I became initially interested in Patrick Kelly. I also, you know, had internships in the fashion industry Um, when I was a teenager. I grew up, um, as I said, um, in um, New York City and, um, you know, thought for a time that I would go into fashion in relationship to editorial or something to that effect. But that wasn't in the cards for me. I pursued instead, you know, academic life um, and especially doing research on fashion history, particularly as it pertains to the Black diaspora. And, you know, I just, you know, sort of noticed, as I'm sure you and other people have noticed, there's some articles that have been written about Patrick Kelly, including, you know, a couple by myself, but he still has not been given um, a biographical treatment. And there are so many other subjects, you know, so many other designers who, you know, are what, on their like 12th, 15th, 20th biography? Uh (laughs) Uh I just really felt that it would be really important for Patrick Kelly to have a biography that talked about his life and work. And that hopefully it might inspire other people to, you know, take up biography as a way to kind of fill some of the critical gaps of the contributions of Black people and Black queer people, um, Black women to fashion. Right. Yeah. And I I was really surprised, too, when I began research for this article before I I came to you. I was just really surprised because he's such an exciting, important designer in my mind. And there's really nothing out there about um, his life and legacy. So very excited to read your book when it comes out. Uh, You'll have to let us know when that happens. But today... We're here to talk about Patrick. And for those listeners that may not know, can you just start by telling us a little bit about Patrick himself, when he was born, where he's from? Yeah, absolutely. So Patrick Kelly was born on September 24th, 1954 in Vicksburg, Mississippi. His mother's name was Letha Kelly. His father's name was Danny Kelly. He had an older brother named Daniel, a younger brother named William. Um, And he grew up also um, around his other family members, especially his grandmother, Ethel Rainey, his maternal grandmother. And he really was very proud to be from Mississippi and um, especially to be uh, from Vicksburg. His family was one that was kind of working to uh, middle class. His grandmother was a domestic. His mother was a home economics teacher. His father drove cabs and also you know, worked in fishing uh, as well. And he was, for his entire life, a really fun, happy, (laughs) you know, humorous person. Um, He 
as I said, was born in 1954, which, you know, people, you know, will also recall as an important date because it's also the decision known as Brown versus the Board of Education, which desegregated um, American uh, schools. And um, that's interesting because Patrick Kelly himself, um, though that decision was in 1954, actually went to segregated schools up until his senior year of high school um, when Vicksburg desegregated the uh, schools in the city in his senior year. And he and other people who he had spent his entire life with in in all black schools um, were then integrated with students from the white schools um, in Vicksburg. And, you know, that kind of race context really did inform a lot of his social, political, cultural beliefs. What's connected to that is that, you know, growing up in Vicksburg and in Mississippi, right, he was privy to a lot of the work that was happening in the civil rights movement, the Freedom Schools, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Congress on Racial Equality. A lot of these, you know, civil rights and human rights organizations would come through Vicksburg and Jackson, Mississippi, and do really important civil rights demonstrations and political organizing and voting rights organizing. And so he, he grew up in a a very rich context for thinking about individuality, for thinking about democracy, for thinking about um, diversity and difference and inclusion as something to be fought for and to be celebrated. Uh, and so I just think it's really important that whenever, you know, people um, come to understand him, you know, as a designer, you know, I think it's really important that they understand also, you know, that really important part of his uh, history. And that's what I'm I'm bringing back, you know, in the biography. I want people to see the work that he produces as a designer within the longer story of, you know, the people, the places, the historical moments that informed and made him who he was. Right. And we are going to definitely get into that a little bit later on. But first, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about how Patrick came to fashion design. Yeah, so he came to fashion, I guess, technically speaking, in terms of the technical side, um, his mother, as I mentioned, was a home economics teacher. And so he learned how to sew partially from her, but but more importantly, from his aunt, whose name was Bernard. His aunt Bernard taught him to sew. Um, His mother, you know, didn't want him to sort of pursue fashion. Um, She preferred that he be a lawyer or a doctor or something that was more of a sure thing. Um, (laughs) But nevertheless, she was a home economics teacher. And so, you know, and it also, she did that in schools where he also was a student. And so, you know, she was a really big part of him actually beginning to get the skills of doing fashion and design, sewing, as well as pattern making. He also came to it because of his grandmother, um, who was domestic, as I mentioned, um, and worked in the homes of wealthy and middle-class white families in Vicksburg and in the surrounds of Vicksburg, who would bring him magazines um, that she had gotten from the people's homes um, that she cleaned, Um, Harper's Bazaar and Vogue uh, especially. And he would look through those magazines and, you know, really love the images that was in them and how beautiful the clothing was and the photographs and, and so on and so forth. But he also noticed that Black people were not featured in those magazines. And he told the story that as a child, like, he would say to his grandmother, you know, why are there no Black women, you know, in these magazines or no Black people? And his grandmother told him it was because people didn't believe that Black people were important enough to 
to be in those magazines. And he made it up in his mind then, like as a young person, that he was going to make an intervention into that. That, you know, he knew that Black people, Black culture, Black style was, in fact, important enough, significant enough to be featured in those magazines and be center subjects um, in uh, the sort of fashion stories and, and, and features that were being shown there. And so, you know, that really gave him a lot of gumption to want to get into fashion um, as industry and to have a specific kind of intervention that he wanted to make. But I also think it's important to, to speak to the fact that he loved making clothes for people who he went to school with. Um, a lot of the people who I interviewed knew him from the time they were in kindergarten to the time <laughs> they were in And he would talk about like how, you know, they would be in class doing work and Patrick would be like sketching, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or if they needed a dress for a dance, the prom, the junior prom, homecoming. He was basically outfitting the whole like Vicksburg high school and middle schools <laughs> and, and was running like a business, you know, as like a young adult. And he also was really fascinated in not necessarily just fashion design, but also how clothes were displayed. As early as the time he was in high school, he was designing windows for some of the local department stores and boutiques in Vicksburg just for free. Um, he would go to the stores and ask them, you know, can I, you know, design your windows? Uh, and they would be like, sure. And, and he would, and he that was something that he would do later on as well. Um, once he got to Atlanta with the Eve Saint Laurent boutique um, was design windows. But, you know, f fashion was just really a love of his, his entire life and all aspects of it, from design to display to photography. Um, he just had a whole very broad sort of vision um, of an aesthetic enterprise um, that he was trying to sort of bring, manifest and bring in into the world. And a founder calling at such a young age, too, is quite remarkable. So you mentioned Atlanta. So he graduates high school in 1972. He goes to college, I, I think, on an art scholarship, but he leaves, I think, after 18 months to pursue fashion full-time. Can you tell us about his early ventures into the fashion industry? Yeah. So, you know, leaving Vicksburg, um, as you mentioned, he went to Jackson State University, historically black college and university in Jackson, Mississippi. And there he continued to do a lot of work designing dresses for women who were in pageants like the Miss Black Mississippi pageant or, you know, Jackson State University homecoming. But he moved to Atlanta because, you know, in the South, especially, you know, Atlanta had and still has a very vibrant fashion industry of its own. And, you know, he went there to try to make it, to be a part of that. And he really was able to do that in no time. He made a lot of friends who were also trying to make it in fashion as models, as photographers, as designers themselves, people who were enrolled in fashion school uh, in Atlanta. And he basically created a kind of, you know, family, you know, for himself and, and people who were just all striving and being supportive of one another. And that's something that he, you know, did everywhere he went. When he goes to New York, when he goes to Paris, in all of those places, he creates this kind of like village, you know, that really supports him and he supports them. And, you know, they're all trying to make it together and sharing each other's dreams and supporting one another. Um, so in, you know, Atlanta, um, he he worked, um, as I mentioned, at Yves Saint Laurent um, Boutique as uh, a window designer. He 
also worked at uh, these what they would call them like these kind of trade shows where people could go and buy like, you know, um, accessories or, you know, buy, you know, handbag, you know, handbags wholesale or different ornamentations like you could put on clothing. And one person who he knew there who did that work, who was really also supportive of him is a woman by the name of Ellie Wolf, who worked in a shop um, that she and her husband um, owned called Total Accessories. Um, and so Patrick would produce fashion shows as a part of these trade shows so that people could display uh, their work and build relationships that would allow him to get access to materials and resources that he needed to put on his own shows and designs. He also was really huge into nightlife. Um, he loved to party um, and loved to dance and loved to do, I guess, what I think of now as like the kind of fashion equivalent of a flash mob, <laughs> where just like kind of you know, make clothes and and get his friends who wanted to model to put them on and they would all go out to a club in Atlanta and they would just turn it out. <laughs> like, <laughs> and just like have a runway show on the spot. And they became kind of known for that. Someone who I interviewed said that we became, we, we started getting referred to as the Kelly kids. Like, cause we would just like come, you know, to these clubs and just people would be waiting for us to, you know, see what we were going to do next. By the time he left Atlanta um, and ultimately went to New York, he basically had become someone who was known in Atlanta. You know, he could have really, in some ways, if he wanted to, I think, stopped there, right? And just been, you know, someone who owned a boutique in Atlanta um, and was known for fashion because he had enough of a following. People really adored him. But, you know, he had bigger, you know, sort of um, thoughts about how he can make the impact he wanted to make um, and have the career he was pursuing. And, you know, people um, encouraged him to go to New York. Pat Cleveland um, was one of those people who he met when she was in a fashion show um, in Atlanta. He also met people like Iman uh, and also Audrey Smaltz, um, who owned a company called The Ground Crew that produced fashion shows for years and produced all of his fashion shows. And so there were a lot of people who were encouraging him to go to New York. He knew what he did not know, and he wanted to sort of pursue certain skill sets that he thought would help him um, get into the industry. And so he began to apply for school um, at Parsons School of Design in New York, and that's what ultimately led to him going there. And he stayed in New York, and did he finish his time at Parsons? No, he didn't. Um, he was at Parsons for a, like about a little bit more than a semester. In general... <laughs> Uh, which I'll get more specific things about this in the book. But he, Patrick was not one for school. He um, was, you know, a creative in the true sense of a creative. Like, I guess kind of that that, that sort of um, stereotype of artist that we see, you know, on television shows or in books. You know, he really was about his creative life. An extremely smart person, but, you know, he had an idea of what he wanted to do and he was going to do that. Um, and he didn't necessarily you know, enjoy his time at Parsons for lots of reasons. Um, he shared with some friends, you know, experiences that he had with regards to race and racism that, you know, made him not comfortable there. Um, he shared with others that he just didn't, you know, feel that he was learning um, things that he wanted, you know, to learn. But ultimately, the real reason why he ended up not being at Parsons anymore was because he couldn't afford it. He went there on a scholarship that ultimately was uh, rescinded and um, he could not continue in school, even if he wanted to. 
Um, but he did in New York, again, create a village. Um, and in fact, some of the people who he knew in Atlanta had already moved to New York by the time he got there. And so he had that kind of support. One of those people was Sharon Magic Jordan, now um, Sharon Magic Jordan Roach, who was is um, a, a model um, and still teaches um, modeling. And, you know, he knew her in Atlanta and she had gone to New York before him. And so he was, you know, he had her and he had, you know, lots of other friends who um, he made there. And again, he, you know, was making clothes for people and they were going out and partying at Paradise Garage, which was his favorite club, having a good time. Um, but he was really striking out trying to, get a job, you know, um, in a design house. He would make his portfolios and go around town and no one was really interested in, you know, what it is that he um, was doing. And, um, you know, my thought about that, I, one of the thoughts about that is that he was really, really highly creative, right? His portfolios, at least the ones that I've seen, you know, definitely sort of would have marked him as someone who would have been a better fit for a Paris fashion house, you know, than an American sportswear, you know. Um, right. But it really kind of like knocked him back a little bit. Um, but he was a really persistent person. So it didn't take long for him to sort of think about, okay, you know, what's next? What's the next best decision I can make? Right. So goodbye, New York, and hello, Paris. And we'll hear all about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So where most American designers get their start in America, Patrick's career really began in Paris, where he moved in 1979. So Eric, can you please tell us more about Patrick's early years in Paris? It actually was not very easy for him starting out, right? No, he essentially, you know, got there and didn't know the language. Uh, that was, you know, difficult for him. He didn't know any people. He knew people who would go back and forth and travel and trying to be in, in the industry, but he didn't necessarily, you know, have that same community that he had when he was in New York or Atlanta. And, you know, I mean, he was trying to, you know, do as a lot of young designers were doing, you know, and just kind of find, you know, work and just essentially, go, you know, from house to house again, looking for a job as an assistant um, in, a, in a design house. Uh, he, you know, did that for a while. He would make clothes and sell them on the street. Um, he was very entrepreneurial in that respect. One of the things that he would do is he would make coats um, because he knew that you could make, uh, if you made coats, People could try on a coat on the street, but they can't try on like a dress on the street, right? Right. <laughs> so that would be an easy thing to be able to sell. So, you know, coats on the street. He eventually met a woman by the name of Elizabeth Goodrum, who was one of his best friends. She's called Miss Liz, and you'll always see her referred to as Miss Liz. Um, I'm sure she'll listen to the time, Miss Liz. Um, <laughs> and Miss Liz began to do costumes for shows at uh, La Palace, which was known as the kind of like the Studio 54 of Paris uh, at the time. And they would put on these like, you know, almost Vegas scale, right? Like, you know, um, shows. And they needed someone to make costumes, a lot of costumes. And Patrick, you know, wanted the job, but he didn't want them to think he couldn't do it. <laughs> so <laughs> he 
just kind of like let them believe like he had like this team of people who were going to turn these costumes out. But nearly it was just him and Miss Liz. Uh, and they got the job done uh, and it was really, really difficult, but they got the job done and they kind of, and they were able to meet a lot of people because a lot of people would att- would go to that club and see the shows and see those costumes. He also was able to begin to make a name for himself and make money um, in fashion at a really difficult time because he also met a lot of models. And models would come to Paris, um, especially American models would come to Paris looking for work, and they didn't have things to wear to go sees, um, and they couldn't afford to pay a lot for it because what? you? I mean, as a model, you're paying for, like, tra- transportation, you're paying for food, you're living in a model house with, like, 10 other people, and you have to pay rent. You are really kind of pressed for money, and so he would make these garments, these clothes that models could wear on their go sees, uh, which again was another entrepreneurial moment because one, you know, he was providing like the service to them um, and and making these really wonderful clothes that would let them, you know, go on these go sees. But then of course they would inevitably be asked, "Who made that dress?" Right, and the right. answer would be Kelly. Uh, <laughs> It was really difficult for him, yes, but, you know, he was a really persistent person. If there was a way, he would find a way. You know, that was his sort of way of managing and navigating those really early years where he was strapped for cash. And, you know, in the midst of all of that, he also, whatever little he had to give, he shared it with other people. You know, a lot of the models I spoke to talk about how they just would all live at his apartment. And he was like, kind of like, you know, the den dad or den mom and would come back from a day of selling his coats and make them all dinner and Um, you know, talk to them and encourage them. And so, you know, he found a way to kind of create the context in which he and other people could flourish and thrive with very little means. And that was something that wasn't unfamiliar to him as someone who grew up in a family of very little means, but, you know, made beauty and, 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 and made a life. So how did this very hardworking young man finally break into the fashion industry in Paris? His sort of first real job um, in the industry was as a um, assistant for Paco Rabanne. And he described Paco Rabanne in uh, the one like lecture that he ever gave that was recorded as being, you know, really eccentric um, <laughs> and, um, and fun to work for and challenging, but that he learned a lot from Paco Rabanne and from the, his time there. He also broke in through Victoire Boutique, which still exists. Um, and at the time, um, Victoire Boutique was the clothes that were you know, um, sold in the boutique um, were breaking a lot of big designers before they became really big because they were being selected by Francois Chachagnac, who was the sort of head buyer for Victoire. So um, Ezzedine Alaya, Thierry Mugler, um, are just two of the designers who were featured in Victoire and, you know, obviously went on to have, you know, incredible careers. And so Patrick um, one day just saw these um, this fabric that he loved. It was like a wool fabric and he wanted to make dresses with it and had this idea that he and his partner, by that time, Bjorn Amalan, um, who was his business partner and also his um, life partner, would, you know, take these dresses and go over to Victoire and just show them, you know, what he had going. And Francois Chachagnac loved the dresses. And she just really, really 
immediately just fell in love with him, fell in love with the clothes, and recommended um, that uh, Nicole Crissat, who was the uh, fashion editor for Elle, come and see Patrick's clothes. And she did, and she loved them. And, you know, it led to him having uh, a fashion editorial in Elle, uh, and his everything just kind of moved from there. It was that editorial that really just kind of was like a lightning rod. And, you know, his, his, his life changed forever after that moment. Uh, and uh, Victoire also really supported him in those early years by giving him space in which to design in their, um, it's like the top of um, uh, one of the buildings where they did their work on um, Rue de Mai uh, in Paris. Um, he did freelance jobs such as um, work for Benetton, for Roberto de Camerino, and, you know, just began to have more and more opportunities um, that he could, you know, sort of take those resources that he was getting from the work he was doing and pour it back into creating his own house, which he eventually was able to do, um, which was called Patrick Kelly Paris. And when did he open his own house? His first show was in 1985, um, and it was held in an apartment. And uh, he really was, you know, again, very little means, but he just kind of pulled together all the people um, who he knew to, you know, try to do the best, you know, job that he, you know, could do. So um, Theory uh, Dreyfus, who was was the lighting designer for um, that show, I mean, it was the first show that he had ever done, but has gone on since to basically do almost everybody's show um, in Paris um, with lighting design, you know, lit the whole room with candles. Patrick had, you know, designed the room himself the way that he wanted. They have very little space, but, you know, he set it up like a runway and tried to make it as opulent as he could with the little financial means um, that he had and um, create the atmosphere of, you know, a fashion show of a house that was much bigger, right, than it was um, at that point. Yeah, and actually, Patrick very quickly became the darling of the American fashion press. And a a lot of it really has to do with his playful, joyful designs, which we're going to talk about. So in 1986, Women's Wear Daily wrote about Patrick's fall-winter 86 collection, calling it an haute couture parody and commenting on how his, quote, homage to Josephine Baker managed to wrench laughs from even the most fashion-weary buyers. The collection was fun. And I really want to focus on the word fun here, Eric, because... This is a term that would really come to define Patrick Kelly's collections time and time again. So can you tell us about his one-of-a-kind design aesthetic that was, among many things, fun? Yeah, I I mean, I think that, you know, that really was in many ways the sort of centerpiece of uh, his aesthetic. Fun is is one way to to speak to it. I think joy. Joy, yes. Yeah. For him, he felt, he had great respect for people who preceded him uh, in fashion and, you know, those who were his contemporaries. But he felt that you could be both sort of smart in terms of the work you made and also um, have a good time. And he found that in color, in fit, in the ways people kind of talked about some of the work at the time, that it could be a bit too serious. And he wanted people to just kind of like lighten it up a little bit. 
And so for him, that was really what he tried to pull into the industry in terms of like the signatures that he would bring into his uh, design work. So one of the dresses that he became really known for was his um, button dresses, right? He would have these dresses that he would adorn in mismatched buttons, sometimes in the shape of a bolero, sometimes hearts on the front, sometimes the buttons would be all gold. And it was his top seller in Patrick Kelly Paris. It was his top uh, selling dress. And so he would go on to make this dress the sort of centerpiece of a lot of the future shows that he would did and also all of the ad campaigns. The idea from it came from his grandmother when he was growing up um, and he would lose a button as, you know, many of us are prone to do, child and adult alike. Um, <laughs> His grandmother would replace the button, but the buttons wouldn't match because, you know, as people of relatively little means, they couldn't be concerned about whether or not a button matched. You just needed a button that works, you know, it needed to be functional. That was something that often people would be teased for, right? It's like you have this button and one button's red and small and the other one's blue, and, you know, and large and the other's tortoise shell, you know, <laughs> and medium sized. Um, and so when he began to make these button dresses, it was a homage to his grandmother and also to people of little means, a very specific kind of Black, Southern, and quite frankly, you know, poor sensibility and sort of brought into the world of uh, high fashion. Um, he, the same was true with bows. You know, one of his signatures was bows. And some people will probably know in fashion history that bows and, you know, got gossamer ribbons, right? Like it was, that kind of ornamentation was often sort of like a, a sign of a certain kind of class status and financial means. And he wouldn't just make something and put one bow on it. He'd put like 20 on it, <laughs> you know, um, in some ways to kind of parody the significance of how that bow was supposed to mean a certain kind of class, you know, like attainment or ascension. And at the same time, to really just make something beautiful and, and joyful um, because um, it was a kind of, I guess, accessorizing um, ornamentation that he thought brought him a lot of joy uh, and happiness. He also was really, really thoughtful about um, the body and specifically about women who were, you know, more curvy, or I guess as the industry now would say, you know, plus size. Um, he referred to his grandmother and mother as his twin beauties. <laughs> uh, and they were, for him, the centerpiece of all the clothes that he made. And both of them were plus-size uh, curvy women. And um, he said once in an interview, you know, that like lots of people try to shame and talk poorly about women who were larger in size. And as a result, they would feel that shame and put on lots of clothes and try to cover up. And he would say, you know what, like... Even if if people are going to call you like that or make fun of you and you have on all those clothes on top of you, like they're going to still say it whether or not, you know, you have that on or a Lycra dress on. So you might as well put on that Lycra dress <laughs> and show it off and have a good time. Um, and so he was really about everybody being beautiful and being really proud of who you are uh, and not being um, deterred from having a full joyful life and, and feeling some self-respect and self-esteem because of what other people, you know, were saying and doing. Right. Right. 
I'm hoping we can talk a little bit more about his actual fashion shows because I had mentioned, Women's Wear Daily had mentioned Josephine Baker earlier, and that was actually Pat Cleveland coming down the runway, right? His his earlier supporter is now modeling for him. And, um, and of course, Pat herself is known for being a really fun, joyful model. Can you talk a little bit more about his fashion shows? Oh, yeah. His fashion shows were, I mean... He was, in my opinion, a performance artist, <laughs> right? Um, specific, and I think the fashion shows, you know, especially show that. The soundtrack was always lively. Funk music, R&B, soul music, gospel music, pop music, uh, disco house. He just really tried to create an atmosphere that was very contemporary and youthful, really very Black American in terms of like the musical influences, you know, with the models. Many of those that I interview would say like, you know, backstage, he would like tell them a whole story that he wanted them to affect, right? And he would encourage them to speak to each other on the runway, you know, and kind of like, you know, challenge each other and dare each other on who was the more, most fierce, right? And so... <laughs> It would draw these giggles and laughs from the the photographers and from the editors, you know, and people who were sitting in those first rows because they could hear models saying things to each other like, oh, girl, you think you look good, but let me show them what I got. Right. And they could hear (laughs) while they're, you know, on the runway. And, you know, he would encourage that backstage and say, "Okay, so your storyline is the three of you are going out to the club and y'all walking up and you're about to get in. And then you see this fourth girl and you're like. Oh, you're good enough to be with us, but we're going to show you how good we look, you know. So he would give these like narrative um, that would have them kind of cracking up backstage and really get them going um, to get out on the runway. And Pat Cleveland, you know, we all know, um, you know, in fashion history, I mean, you know, who is legendary, right, for really being um, a dancer, right, um, as a model um, in many respects. Played Josephine Baker, who was someone who Patrick Kelly idolized um, and loved Josephine Baker. In one of the shows, you know, Pat Cleveland comes onto the runway as Josephine Baker and has on the famous banana skirt, um, has the, you know, finger waves and kind of wire bikini top, um, which was a collaboration like between Patrick Kelly and um, David um, Spada. And, you know, really just, you know, gave a full Josephine Baker moment, which, of course, you know, had everyone, you know, in the room just loving it. So you can actually find a couple of his fashion shows on YouTube, of course, but just to give our listeners an idea about one of his shows, for instance, the New York Times wrote in 1987 about one of his collections. So a t-shirt bore the picture of a corset. Some of his mannequins wore what seemed like seashells as brassiers with their sequined mermaid skirts. Three men in scuba diving outfits followed them, then marched or rather shuffled down the runway on their flippers. When they were not being pursued by divers, his sequin-clad models blew soap bubbles at the audience. So like you said, Eric, so much joy in, in his collections. But you know, not all of his designs were met with enthusiasm. So can you talk about his controversial use or rather reclamation of blackface and other racist imagery as motifs in his designs? Yeah. So, I mean, the sort of really center object, right, of this um, part of his career was the actual logo of Patrick Kelly Paris, um, which featured uh, a gollywog. And a gollywog um, was a character that was especially sort of featured in British 
children's literature um, in the 19th century that showed, you know, um, a black figure in a very stereotypical way, um, a kind of jet black face, very red, extra large lips, very wide, you know, white eyes, images that circulated, not just, again, um, in, you know, with the Gollywog and in British, you know, culture, but in American culture for decades and decades. And so uh, he, you know, chose that as the logo for the company. And he did so because for him, um, you know, he was very aware of how these images had historically been used to try to shame people, to make people, to to, to do violence, really, and make people um, upset and try to make fun of them uh, and um, create these misrepresentations of Black people and Blackness and something that people should be ashamed of. Uh, and um, he knew that, again, because, as I said earlier, you know, the context that he grew up in, he grew up in Mississippi when he went to Jackson State, he studied Black history. History and he studied art history. Um, and so he was very aware of the kinds of, you know, damage that these images did. But he believed very much in, again, not allowing what he saw as other people's problems, you know, to do you harm. And so he did try to, you know, reclaim that image, you know, and others as a way to, you know, say, you know, I'm not going to allow what it is that other people have created to do harm to me or to my people to do me harm. The, the same is true in the actual designs. I mean, there are there are dresses and, that he made that have prints that are made out of the kind of gollywog symbol. And he collected dolls. There's still a collection of Patrick Kelly dolls, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dolls. Um, some of them are race affirming and some of them are not race affirming. Um, but he believed it was very much important to preserve that history and to do the best you can to, you know, sort of reappropriate or, you know, reclaim it so that it doesn't do the harm uh, that it could do or that it did do um, to people. And that wasn't something that other people necessarily, you know, identified with. Uh, there are a lot of people who even today just would rather see those kinds of images not you know, just kind of disappear, you know, completely. But I think what he was attempting to do um, was to try to, again, and this is, you know, a continuous thing um, throughout his life, you know, try to find a way to make some beauty, to do that in a way that still also told the truth. And I think that he, you know, whether or not he's successful about that, I think people have the right to have their own opinions um, and thought about that. But as a biographer, what is really interesting to me is, you know, I think it's very important that people see his decision to do those things um, within the context of, you know, everything that he knew, everything that he believed and, you know, where he grew up, where he was from and, you know, what his intentions were. Oh, I would also add there was um, a, a photo shoot um, done with Annie Leibovitz oh, for yes. Vanity Fair magazine, where Patrick was sort of dressed up and pictured as a pickaninny um, with bows in his hair, and he had buttons in the places where his eyes should be, um, and it looked like a very uh, an image um, that circulated, a cartoon image um, that had circulated um, in uh, the sort of earlier. Um, part of the 20th century, and um, models, um, white models in blackface, uh, and people were not happy. You know, some people were not happy with that um, at the time, um, and some folks shared that with him. And his sort of thinking about it uh, was that 
this is the history, you know, that exists. This is what people have done to try to portray us, you know, in particular ways. And, you know, I am a creative and I'm a designer and this is how, you know, I'm going to try to do, you know, um, what I see as my part, you know, to sort of reclaim and reappropriate this so that, you know, it does not have power over me or other people. His thought was, I see what this is supposed to do, and here's how I'm not going to let it do that. Some people support him in that, and other people didn't necessarily, you know, like it as much uh, then. Um, but, you know, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we see these kinds of things happen all the time, you know, the sort of latest thing, the issue, you know, with Gucci, for example. And, um, you know, his name, he always pops up every time one of those kinds of, you know, issues happen, <laughs> you know, with the company, company, like his name comes up again. And, you know, I, I find that to be really important because I think that he, you know, offers um, some way for us to kind of think through the sort of ethics uh, you know, around that, um, even if ultimately people come down on the side of not liking what he did. Yeah, and Robin Gavon actually said, no other well-known fashion designer has been so inextricably linked to both his race and his culture, and no other designer was so purposeful in exploiting both. And she actually wrote a really interesting article about um, Patrick a couple years ago that really explored that uh, in relationship to his designs, because he really was one of the only designers really doing that back then, right? Yeah, he was. And, you know, the also I should, you know, sort of point out that both um, Thelma Golden in 2004 did a retrospective of Kelly's um, work uh, and Dillis Blum at the Philadelphia Museum of Art also did a retrospective of Kelly's work. And in both of those retrospectives, you know, they really did include um, some discussion of this um, intervention, right, that he, you know, um, w- was making with regards to the relationship between his design and this uh, and black memorabilia again some race affirming and some not Patrick really became an international sensation during the 1980s. In 1987, he signed an exclusive deal with the American fashion conglomerate Warnico to bring his designs to the U.S. And in 1988, he became one of only a very small handful of Americans ever to be accepted into France's prestigious Chambre Syndicale de Prêt-à-Porter. So can you talk a little bit about why this is so significant? Yeah, it was so significant because... He was the first, right? I mean, um, well, on the one hand, you know, he was an American, you know, and the Chambre Syndicale and the Paris, you know, fashion industry really had, a, um, at least prior to um, the Battle of Versailles, right, a sort of thought of, you know, American fashion designers as maybe not being someone who could be a part of their sort of, you know, exclusive club. And, you know, I think as, you know, history has shown through Robin Gavon's work in the Battle of Versailles, the film Versailles 73, like we know that some of that shifted, you know, after that moment. And so in many ways, that moment really kind of prepared Paris to receive Patrick Kelly. Um, at least that, that's my sort of thought about it. Um, but he 
was extremely creative and and worked in a way that drew the respect of people in um, the fashion um, community of Paris. Pierre Berger, um, who was the head of the Chambre uh, Syndicale um, and also the partner to Yves Saint Laurent, um, Sonia Raquel, who was extremely supportive of Patrick Kelly at the time, as was um, Yves Saint Laurent and uh, other designers um, in Paris as well. And so it was it was huge that Amer- an American would be sort of welcomed into their ranks in that way. And then also, I think it's important to note, you know, that he wasn't just American, but he's a, a Black American, right? And obviously, you know, there are Black people, you know, in Paris, um, but... You know, it was really, I think, important to sort of recognize, um, or at least I see him as an extension of the kind of history of Black American expatriates in Paris doing really important, you know, creative work, right? So we focus historically on Nina Simone and James Baldwin and Richard Wright and Josephine Baker, you know, but Patrick, you know, I would put him in that class and just say that he chose a different medium to do um, the work that he was doing. For him, it was fashion. For them, it was music music, you know, uh, or theater or the novel. And I also think it was really important, you know, because he became a kind of symbol, I think, um, for people of what was possible. You know, he was young and was someone who really kind of like made a meteoric rise. I mean, when you get down to the actual brass tacks of it, this we're talking about five years, right? Like in five years, he met, met so many huge benchmarks that sometimes it takes many designers their whole careers, you know, to kind of, you know, meet. And he, he became very symbolic. And I think even now, part of why people kind of link back to him at times is to think about the fact that he is an, an inspiration of what it means for someone to have tenacity um, and a vision and to, you know, pursue it. You know, people would say, you know, a lot of what happened for him was luck. I think Patrick would say, Kelly would say that it was manifestation. He believed very strongly in that. From a very young age, of you, as you have shown, he was working towards this, towards this, this vision of what he eventually became. Yeah, and he would say, I mean, um, you know, one of the things that um, he would say all the time, and it's actually what's um, written on his crypt um, at um, Père Lachaise in um, Paris, is nothing is impossible, right? Um, you know, that people can do whatever it is that they really aspire to. But he also would say to people, if you're going to dream, dream big, because it costs the same, <laughs> right? And so it doesn't matter. So, you know, why waste your time, you know, thinking of a small dream? You know, it's going to cost you the same work to get there. So dream big. So while researching your book, you actually recently just put out a call to friends and family of Patrick, people who knew him, asking them to share any memories that they may have of the late designer. And you've given us a really good idea about Patrick Kelly as a designer, but you speak a little bit more about Patrick Kelly as a person. It says a lot that his greatest muse was his grandmother. Yeah, and he um, he believed, he was the kind of person who really believed in keeping the people um, who know you and loved you and believe in you really close. And that's what I why I think his grandmother became the centerpiece of his aesthetic enterprise known as Patrick Kelly Paris. It was a way of him keeping her close, even though she, you know, was very far away at that point. She's in Vicksburg and he's in Paris. But, 
you know, who he was as a person, the number one thing that people say about him in across all of the interviews, um, and at this point, I mean, we're talking of, you know, hundreds, you know, of hours of interviews and, and dozens and dozens and dozens of people, is that he was a generous person. He was an extremely giving person. If he had it and you needed it, you would get it. And even if you didn't need it or say that you wanted it, he would always give to people. Um, he was also a really humorous person. You know, a lot of people, I mean, I just, I mean, we're talking riotous laughter. In <laughs> stories, things that he did or said. Um, and he had that quick, you know, sort of, you know, Southern wit that we all, you know, hear about. Um, it was really funny. He often referred to himself as kind of the Lucille Ball of fashion um, and really loved, I love Lucy um, as a show. I'm interested in him as also an intellectual. I think that there's at times, you know, um, because he wasn't so overt, um, he wasn't a talker, he was a doer, mm -hmm. that I think a lot of the intellectual contributions and things that he, you know, really drove what he was attempting to do um, often get lost, um, which is why this is a book about, about his life and his work, because I want to remind people or restore that aspect of, you know, who he was. He was a very, very thoughtful person. He just didn't do a lot of talk about it. He, he, he let the work speak for itself. In fact, he did a, 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 a uh, it was supposed to be a lecture once at FIT um, that I mentioned. And instead of getting out there to do the lecture, he said, you know what, I'm just going to let y'all see these clothes. And then I'm going to answer some questions. <laughs> and the lecture came out by way of, of him engaging with people. Uh, and that makes total sense to who he was as a person. He, he wasn't a, like, I'm going to stand here at a podium and talk about my work. I'm going to show you the work and then we can have a conversation about it because I want to I want to be with people. Well, we're reaching the end of our time here, and I think it's going to surprise and sadden a lot of listeners who don't know um, but Patrick actually died of AIDS in 1990 at the age of just 35 years old. So he'd only debuted eight collections over four years, and yet his legacy is undoubtedly significant today. So please tell us why his work, and more importantly, Patrick, the man, is so important historically and today. Uh, his work is important, and he is important, um, not just because of what he accomplished, but I think in many ways for what he, he wasn't able to live long enough to accomplish. And what I mean by that is, you know, there will always be, you know, surrounding his narrative, right, his story about his life, you know, the both the, the, the sadness and inspiration around possibility, right? Like there were so many things that were still possible. Uh, and I think that that serves as an inspiration to creatives um, today in fashion and in other sort of, you know, mediums of creative work that you really can, you know, the cliche that if you work hard, you know, and sort of dream and have a vision, you can, you can make it become a reality is a cliche for a reason, right? Um, because there's, you know, a grain, you know, of truth in that. And he's someone who represents that. Um, I also think that he really contributed to the fashion vocabulary uh, uh, in ways that, you know, often go overlooked. But I guess the most sort of really key one for me is really the ways in which he sort of engaged in the intersection of, you know, bringing his own history and ethnicity, you know, into 
his uh, design work. He thought that that was extremely important um, um, to be able to do and to create a lane for people to be able to do that. And I think we see, you know, the legacy of that in, you know, the work of like some uh, company like, you know, Pierre Moss and Kirby Jean Raymond, for example, um, or uh, Mimi Plange as well, um, and just sort of contemporary designers, um, Black designers who, you know, are engaging in really interesting questions about the intersections of, you know, self-identity and design. And I think lastly, you know, he's really um, important because, um, again, he, you know, really believed in the power of manifestation and setting a vision for one's life and, you know, really just going in the direction of that. And I think we all could use that lesson. Eric, thank you so much for being here. This was a really wonderful look back at a wonderful man. Thank you so much for having me. Eric, thank you so much for sharing the life and legacy of such an incredibly important designer and person. And I just have to say that the devastation wrought by the AIDS epidemic underscores a lot of the topics we have actually covered on Dressed. Mm -hmm. So many people died from this horrible disease, including fashion luminaries such as Halston, Perry Ellis, Antonio Lopez, and Frank Moschino. And it's something that actually hits very close to home for me because my mom's brother, Jay, he was this rising star on the New York art scene of um, the 1980s. He died of AIDS at just 32 years old. 32. So, you know, this entire generation uh, lost, but never forgotten. Not forgotten. And on that somewhat bittersweet note, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you remember Patrick's legacy of joy and love next time you get dressed. We do love hearing from you all. So if you'd like to write to us with questions or episode suggestions, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. And of course, you can always follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you soon. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.